Let me, uh, let me introduce our church before I get into any more trouble. This is what we believe. We believe three things. Number one, there is hope beyond our brokenness. That right now, just as you are, you're loved, you're welcome here, and praise God, he does not leave us right where we are. But he transforms us, and he renews us, and he restores us. Mother's Day can be a, a hard day because of what it was like having a mom, or maybe our experiences being a mom, or maybe our hope to be a mom, but we never got a chance to be a mom. And I just want you to know that that right now, in the middle of that pain, God is with you, and God loves you. I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit mothers us from brokenness to life. Amen? Amen. Second, we believe that we are called to trust in our risen Savior. And like Stuart did this week, when God speaks to us and God is moving in our lives, we have the ability to trust him. We, have, we can make a choice to trust him by then stepping out and actually following through and following directions and obeying what he's saying. And it always turns out way better than we can imagine. That trust is the pathway to joy. And that we are called and we're learning as a community how to trust Jesus. And that takes all of your courage, all of your presence, all of your heart and your mind and your strength. Amen? Amen. Third, we believe that we're called to bring restoration to our community. So right now you are called to bring to join what God is already doing. And I just love that. It that the, the kingdom of God is not the pressure to make things happen. It is the joy of joining what God is already doing out there. What God is already doing in here. Amen? So the pressure is not on you to make anything to happen. The invitation is for you to experience the profound joy of bringing restoration to someone's life. So each one of these choices, each one of these truths, hope beyond our brokenness, trust in our risen Savior, and restoration for our community has a choice. So let's read this just like we do every week. Ready? Here it goes. Let's read this together nice and loud like we mean it. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your presence right here in our midst. We pray, Lord, as we open your scripture, as we read your word, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray against everything opposed to Jesus that would be seeking to distract or take away from this time now in Jesus' name. We pray your protection and blessing over this space. God, we give you permission to speak to us, to confront us to encourage us, to lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. So we've been in the uh, book of John, and we'll continue to be in the book of John all throughout the summer. Um, and right now we're in the second chapter of John. If you remember last week, I started out last week's sermon on Jesus changing water into wine by saying that in John chapter 1, verse 17, John writes this, that Moses gives us the law, but through Jesus we have grace and truth, grace and truth. So last week um, was this sermon about how Jesus 
in the middle of a, of, a, of a wedding when the unthinkable happens and the wine runs out, and that's what happens in our life, right? We plan for the best. We hope for the best. We try and work for the best to celebrate, to rest, to have a vacation. And it's always at that moment that all the wheels fall off. Amen? That right at that moment, that's when we experience grace. We experience grace at the place of our deep need. And the grace that we experience is far more than we could imagine or hope. That was last week. And so I changed water into a pool chemical, and that was pretty great. This week, Jesus is going, so that's grace. So this week, Jesus is going to teach us about truth, and he's going to do that by making a whip and clearing the temple. And so I'm going to whip all of, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do, not, not going to bring a whip today. Um, so Jesus is, it has, has some hard words for us today, and and. And he's going to speak the truth to us. But then Jesus is going to do something far more dangerous. He's going to ask you to believe and to trust that he is the truth. And so that's where we're going together. So um, Jesus is going to make a ruckus at church this morning. And, and we're going to read all about that. Are you ready? Yes. You, yeah, you ready? Yeah. Okay, let's read together John chapter 2, starting the verse 13. Here we go. Now the Passover of the Jewish people was approaching, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to go to three Passovers during his ministry of John. That's how we know that Jesus has, um, was in public ministry for three years. And remember, Passover is a celebration of how Israel, who was once bound in slavery in Egypt, was freed because the angel of death who came to bring justice to an Egyptian people that was causing genocide, that that angel of death passed over those houses marked with the blood of the Lamb. And by the blood of the Lamb, the Jewish people were set free. And so every springtime, right around, well, Easter for us, is a celebration of Passover, that you and I are people that have been set free from death by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen? So Jesus is going up to Passover along with every other person in Israel to celebrate the Passover. So Jerusalem is crowded. Okay? Really, really, really crowded. And what they're all going to do is that they're all, they've all saved up their money and they're going to go and they're going to take, they're going to buy a lamb. Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, is all lamb country at that time. And so they're going to, there's this river of people entering into Jerusalem and a river of lambs being taken into Jerusalem. And there at the temple, they're going to buy a lamb and they're going to sacrifice that lamb. They're going to barbecue the lamb, and they're going to eat the lamb. And that's going to be their feast for the week. Picking up what we're putting down? That's what's going to happen. Okay, let's read verse 14. And he found in the temple... Wait, wait, wait. you got to be exasperated when you read that part. Ready? And he found in the temple 
people selling cattle and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting around. What's wrong with this scenario? Well, the temple is the place that you would go, just like church, the sanctuary, is the place that you would go to experience God's presence and to experience reconciliation, not only with your creator, but with your brothers and sisters. Okay? So it's a sacred space. And this sacred space has been turned into a shopping mall. It'd be really weird if, like, in the cry room was like a Starbucks and a Verizon miniature store and you could go like renew your contract or upgrade your phone, right? And then when you walked out, there was like a little gap in the corner. Like that would be strange. Yes? Okay, so like, yeah, business, don't stop with the Starbucks. So, so every, it, it's not that business is bad, it's just location, location, location. Location matters, right? Okay. So the, the, now, what's this temple? This temple took 46 years to build. It was Herod's, King Herod's greatest building project. It started um, uh, a long time, well, 46 years before Jesus uh, uh, was, was there. And here's Alec Garrard. Alec Garrard is a retired British pensioner, right? And... Um, and I guess a British pensioner is a retired person, but Alec Garrard decided that he would build a one to 100 scale, totally historically and architecturally accurate of what Herod's temple looked like. And his left foot is in the Gentile court. Does that make sense? He's kneeling right next to where the actual temple is, where the Holy of Holies is, where is the courts are and whatnot. And uh, the next picture there, uh, John, you can see here, there's two courts. There's the outer court here on, the, on both the left and the right side. That's the Gentile court where Gentiles would be allowed to pray. Then you have the inner court, which is Israel's court. There's also a full-scale model of this that is, um, you can see if you go to Jerusalem today, it's pretty incredible. But just notice how big this, this outer court is. This whole complex is 11 acres, right? So this outer court is huge. Why is it huge? Well, it's huge for a purpose. It has, the design has a purpose. And here's the purpose behind the design. God wants his home, his house, to be a place where all people can find hope. Israel was called to be a light to all nations. God wants to communicate to both insiders and outsiders, you have a place here, you are welcome here, you are loved. If today's your first Sunday and you, do, you feel like, man, I don't even know, I, I don't even... I feel, is this whole thing going to fall down? It's not. You're welcome here. You're loved. So buildings that take a long time to build actually have a very distinct purpose. For example, let me give you another example. Um, the design of cathedrals also has a particular purpose. Here's the cathedral in Cologne, Germany from a bird's eye view. What do you notice? Every single cathedral is built in the shape of a cross. 
Why? Some cathedrals take 400 years to build. The cathedral in Milan took 800 years to build. The cathedral in Florence took 600 years to build. Notre Dame is taking a lot longer to build after the fire. Right? These things take time to build. Why do they take time to build a singular building that long? Well, it's hard to stack stone on top of each other, but there's also a purpose. There is a design to these buildings, and here's the design. When you would walk into this building in the shape of a cross, your entire experience there would be defined by the cross. And what's going to happen when you walk into a cathedral? What you're going to experience is this. When you get at the very center of the cross, that's where the communion table is. That's where the priest is going to lift up the wafer and say, this is my body broken for you. And he's going to lift up the cup and he say, this is my blood shed for you. And this experience of being in a building is going to say that Everything that you've done that you feel ashamed about, everything that's been done to you that makes you feel ashamed, it is cleansed, it is forgiven, you are totally reconciled with God, you are a brand new creature. Amen? Now, if you go to cathedrals today, you will notice in almost every single cathedral that right at the center of the cross point, there is laid in usually marble a gorgeous mosaic, and that mosaic is of a compass rose. Why? This took over a hundred years to build. Why? Why would anybody spend 100 years making a floor? It's to communicate a message, and that message we forgot for over a thousand years. It's this, that wherever you would go, whatever direction, north, south, east, or west, that you would go, that you would bring to the people that you encounter the same reconciliation and peace you've experienced there at the altar. That's the whole purpose of a cathedral that not only what you experience in that moment would change your life, but that you would be the change that would go out of the cathedral and create peace that surpasses all understanding in this world. But what did the Catholic Church do? The Catholic Church did the exact same thing that the Jewish leaders of the temple did. They bought and sold forgiveness. Not much has changed, has it? Sometimes we still turn church into a business. I'm grateful that we don't in this church. It's very, very good. So the temple was standing, the temple that Jesus was standing in, just like cathedrals, existed so that people, you and I, could experience reconciliation with our Heavenly Father, reconciliation with one another. And religious leaders at Jesus' time had turned this whole thing into this business. And it defied logic, it defied love, and it defied God. Now, what we do when we read scripture is at first we sort of look at the historical context and we say, okay, what's happening here in this scene? And then the second, we say, well, what does this mean? Right? Which we've done both of that with just these two verses. And then the third, most dangerous thing that we do with scriptures is we say, what is the scripture telling me about me? So can I ask you to be courageous? Answer the phone. It might be Jesus. <laughs> can I ask you to be courageous? Yes. 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 God has something that he wants to tell you through this scripture today. 
These are the implications of this scripture passage for your heart right now. Have you transformed your time with God into a business interaction? Meaning, have you taken every moment, uh, the moments that you have with God, and you just give God a to-do list rather than actually enjoying his presence? It's okay to ask for what you want, but sometimes we just turn our time with God in for, into a to-do list. Have we done that? Wendy, God bless you. Thank you for your honesty. Do you bargain and haggle with God? Have you forgotten that part of your enjoyment is to just to enjoy his presence, to offer him praise and thanks? Have you forgotten that when you leave this place, you're calling just like the Israelites, just like the cathedral, the Catholics in the cathedral that you're calling is to be a light to those who do not yet know God. One of the things that was so difficult about Jesus when he saw all of these animals and ruckus in the, in the Gentile court was that it was preventing Gentiles, that's us, by the way, it was preventing people like us from actually praying and getting to know God. Let me ask you a question. When you leave this place, are when you interact with people who do not know Jesus, are they more or less curious about God because of the time they spent with you? Like when you pray, is it the same thing over and over again? Like you're putting in your quarter, pulling the handle, and you're hoping that the answer is yes? These are the tough questions that arise out of this text. Here's the point. You get to choose what kind of relationship you want to have with God. You get to choose what kind of relationship you want to have with your family. I'll never forget Mother's Day when I was 11 years old. Um, we, we did not go to church that morning because my, my dad, Wally, he realized that he had not gotten my mom a Mother's Day gift. And so we went to Costco instead. And it was fantastic because there was a whole lot of other dads without their moms at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Costco, like loading up the cart with stuff and muffins and orange juice, and they're all running around, and all the kids are in tow, and like mom had like 10 minutes at home to finally relax. And so we're walking around, and we're looking, we're looking at all this stuff to get my mom for Mother's Day, and, and my, my dad picks out for her a gift. And that gift was an alarm clock. <laughs> now, my dad is a construction guy. He's an engineer guy. He's a very practical guy. He's a useful guy. He does useful and practical things every day. And um, this would be a useful and practical gift that he would give my mother. And so my mother, she was feeling already a little bit stung that nothing had been done in advance, but she, she, she finally warmed up to it, and we had a great celebration, and then she got her gift, and she was so excited. And um, my mom does not like practical gifts. My, my mom likes extravagant, totally impractical gifts that are just for fun. And she opened up her digital alarm clock, and the stuff that she said, <laughs> wow. I was a, that was a new one for me on Mother's Day. I hadn't heard my mom say those particular words in that order before. And 
we laugh about that to this day. She laughs about that. My dad laughs about that. And what is it? My mom actually commented on it this last year. She, I, I, we were laughing about that story, and she said, "You know, the thing that was toughest in that moment was that it felt like it felt like it was a, a critique on me that my that that." that my husband was wanting me to have an alarm to wake up to be more productive. See, that you get to choose what kind of relationship you have with your spouse. You get to choose what kind of relationship you have with your parents, with your brothers and sisters, with your kids. Like you could, you could get, give them the minimum, you know, the minimum required effort. You familiar with that? You could give them that. How's that going to work out? You could give God that too. You could just say the same things, hoping that like he won't mind what you do in secret. You could just sort of give God a little bit of like, yeah, okay, whatever, and then just go ahead and live with your life. Is that the kind of relationship you want to have with your spouse, with God? Let me ask you a question. Is that the kind of relationship Jesus wants to have with you? I tried that for a while. I said, Jesus, come into my life. Now sit there in the corner and be quiet. <clears throat> the thing about Jesus is, is that he doesn't stay quiet because he's not satisfied with whatever that thing is that's making you sick, whatever that action, that behavior, that thought system, those beliefs that you have about yourself and God, that's just, that's just turning this sacred space, your heart, into something that's not sacred. He's not going to be satisfied with that. So let's, let's find out what he does at church. Easter week. You ready? Read with me. Verse 15. So Jesus made a whip out of cords. Just... What do you do in the pews? <laughs> Is anybody weaving anything right now? Can you imagine? Like his disciples? What are you doing, Jesus? Nothing. You'll oh, you'll see. Right? And he drove them all out of the temple. The sheep as well as the cattle. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Everybody in Israel is heading to the temple to buy a cow or a sheep or a dove. And Jesus is driving them all out of the temple. This is absolutely incredible. I mean, picture yourself, right? You're, you're there, and then somebody starts yelling, and you can hear the crack of a whip, and hundreds of animals start running everywhere, and you're kind of freaking out. You're going, what's going on? Like, this is, like, this is not what you, like, that would be a horrible nightmare at Disneyland, and then all of a sudden, there's a stampede, right? That would be bad. And then all of a sudden, the nightmare turns into your dream come true. Why? Because you start hearing all of these coins hitting the stone floor. And Jesus is throwing the tables over. What do you think is going to happen when like 
millions of dollars worth of coins are scattered all over the floor. This entire sea of people has now hit the deck on their hands and knees trying to get the coins, right? Just picture it. They're rustling through what the animals left behind in order to pick out the coins. And then they look up and what do they see? They see Jesus and he's angry. So can I talk about anger just for a second on Mother's Day? Moms know about anger. I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to explain every nuance of anger, um, so please know that I'm just touching on this subject for a moment. Um, anger for many of us is labeled negative or something to avoid because we don't really know how to be righteously angry. Um, anger in my house swung between two poles when I was growing up. It was either screaming or it was silence. And, and both are not healthy understandings of anger. Um, anger has tremendous energy behind it for a reason. And here's the definition of anger. Read this with me. Anger is the passionate energy to protect and defend someone or something that is sacred and irreplaceably valuable. That's what anger is for. Anger is the passionate energy to defend someone or something that is irreplaceable, irreplaceably valuable and sacred. Now, we have all these different emotions, right? Next slide, John. Um, and they go like this, mad, sad, glad, bad, afraid, and disgust. Watch the movie Inside Out if you want to learn more. Disney does a pretty good job with that. Um, and there's lots of infinite combinations between the two that give you a uh, a much larger under um, and beautiful tapestry and, and color palette of what emotions look like. But emotions are neither good nor bad. Um, they just are. They, they're the exhaust system of the soul. And getting mad or anger is actually given to us by God for a very particular and good reason. When we see someone precious or irreplaceably valuable being threatened or harmed, you get angry, and that's for a good reason. Does that make sense? Because the energy that you that God wants to give you is an energy to move you to then protect them and defend them. You picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. Now, for years, I had no idea how to express my anger. And so instead of expressing my anger in a healthy way, because I was afraid of doing it in an unhealthy way, what I did is that I just stuffed it. Anybody relate with that strategy? I just pressed it down. It would be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen. Terrible strategy. What ended up happening is that I got angry at myself. And then the way that I started treating myself started bleeding out into how I treated everybody else. So what I did, and maybe you can relate with me, is that I would be angry at myself for how I was behaving, and then I would pull out a hammer and tongs and try and beat myself into the shape that I wanted. And I, I, could, never, I could never make myself stay in the shape that I wanted to stay. Does that make sense? Can anybody relate with me? Okay. There's like seven people over here. All y'all are not sure. Okay, okay. There's a couple of them. All right. 
Um, so the lie that I was believing was that I was not valuable. I was not worthy of protecting or defending. And so that's why I could treat myself so harshly. And I would never dare speak to another person the way that I spoke to myself because if I did, I would get hit and I didn't want to get punched. Now, some of you can relate with me, um, but some of you have, a, have different issues with anger. Sometimes you blow up. Sometimes you leave either physically or emotionally. You kind of just shut down. And expressing anger along, along God's design is challenging because anger has so much energy behind, behind it. And, and the key I've learned in my own life about expressing anger is that I have to, I have to figure out where I'm going before I, I hit the throttle, the, I, before I smash down the gas pedal. Does that make sense? So read this with me. Wait, back one more, John. Read the definition of anger with me again. Anger is the passionate energy to protect and defend someone or something that is sacred and irreplaceably valuable. So here's the key that I've had in my life to understand how to deal with anger in a healthy way. When I get angry, the first thing that I have to do is I have to express with my words what is being threatened or harmed that is so valuable to me. And when I can identify that with my words, then I can be angry and I end up not harming myself or another person. Does that make sense? And until I can do that, I try my best to keep the car in neutral. God wants you to defend that which is precious and sacred, which means you have to identify it first. So can I lead us in a dangerous prayer on this Mother's Day? Are you ready? I'm going to read it for you. That way you know what you're getting into. Jesus, teach me how to be angry so that I can protect and defend the people and things you claim as precious. Forgive me for using anger to harm myself and others. I need your help, Jesus. Could we do that? Could we pray that together? You're inviting God to do work in you right now. Holy Spirit, help. Let's pray this. Jesus, teach me how to be angry so that I can protect and defend the people and things you claim as precious. Forgive me for using anger to harm myself and others. I need your help, Jesus. I need to say one more thing about Jesus and his whip. Um, Jesus has a long history of overturning injustices, systems which harm that which is precious, systems and governments and businesses which defile that which is sacred. And Jesus is still at work this day. We pray rightly that God would overturn the systems of injustice that we see in our government and other governments and other businesses in this world. Amen? Amen. Okay. And Jesus is answering our prayers. And here's the thing. Jesus is also answering a far scarier prayer. Because Jesus is also working to overturn the corruption that is in you. What we think is that if what we do doesn't matter all that much, and moms know different. The best thing about moms is that they care about every single little thing. 
Amen. Amen. You care about it all because you know it all matters. And God is saying the exact same thing with you. Look, Jesus doesn't allow a souvenir or trinket from hell into heaven for good reason. Because he wants to protect heaven from anything that's evil because you're there. And he wants to start this work with your heart right now. That heaven would come to earth in you. And so Jesus is also going to answer the prayer to overturn all the tables and all the systems in you that would be so difficult and that would be poisoning you and removing you from God. And the moment that you say yes to that work, then you will have the wisdom to join him in changing this weary world. Okay, so Jesus demands convincingly that the shopping mall and the temple end, but there's more to Jesus' demand. There's this problem. Everybody who's gone to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice is standing there in the temple, and where are the animals? They're gone. That would be a bummer. You bought your little lamb, and now this crazy rabbi from Galilee has driven it out and you have no idea where it is. And you're standing there at the temple with no sacrifice looking at Jesus. And as you stare at Jesus, you're, at, you're looking at him and you're going, who's now going to make me right with God? Verse 18. Read this with me. So the Jewish people responded and said to Jesus, What sign are you going to show us that gives you the right to do these things? Like, who do you think you are? Like, what, what do you, what, like, give us some credentials at least. Like, where's your I can mess up church badge? Like, who are you? Are you the temple police? Like, what is this? You're just some dude? What? Like, can you, do you have anything in your credentials at all that would give you the right to mess this holiday up? Right? And then Jesus said this, destroy the temple in three days, I will raise it right back up again. And then the Jewish people said to him, sure. <laughs> This temple's been in the building for over 46 years, and you're going to put it back up in three days? Like, you're watching Jesus, and you cannot believe his ears. No one person can rebuild this massive building in three days. Either this guy is off his meds, or he thinks he's God. Right? And this is where the story ends. This is it. We don't know what happens next. We don't know if the animals come back. We don't know if Jesus leaves. We don't know if the Gentiles come in and finally can pray. We have no idea what happens next. But here's what we do know. There are no more animals to be sacrificed, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is standing in the temple. There's no more money changers in the temple to make an offering but the Son of God who offered his life as a ransom for us 
to free us from slavery and to make us worthy sons and daughters is standing in the temple. The temple is this place where heaven and earth meet, where God is present with his people, dwelling with his people. And there standing in the temple is a man who's so passionate for God and for you, a man so passionate to unite you with God that he will allow that passion to tear him to pieces. And he's not just a man. He is the man named Jesus who is fully God and fully man. And he will take all of the evil of this world and the evil of your life on his shoulders so that you don't have to bear its weight so that you might be reconciled with your heavenly father. Jesus is willing to be angry so that you might be defended, so that you might be protected. And so Jesus is the new temple. He is the place where we experience God and reconciliation because he is God. And here's the awesome thing about Jesus. When you show up to Jesus, the new temple, you don't have to buy anything. You know why? He's paid it all. And you don't have to offer a sacrifice. You know why? Because he's the perfect sacrifice. And you don't have to be perfect. You know why? Because he's been perfect for you. He is the new temple. And so Martin Luther, the great reformer in the 1500s, wrote this. But today in the New Testament, God has established another temple for his residence, the precious humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. There and nowhere else God wants to be found. So what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Are you going to resent him if he calls you out on that which is making you sick? Or will you join him in overturning the tables that need to be overturned? What will you do with Jesus this week? Will you speak to him and enjoy his presence? Or do you have more to-do lists for him? Will you trust him to speak the truth to you in love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we invite you to speak hard words to us. And we know that you want to defend us and protect us. And God, we thank you for the people that you've brought into our lives to speak hard words to us, our moms, our dads, our mentors, our teachers, our friends. And Jesus, I pray for each person here, your encouragement upon them, your blessing upon them. God, as they turn to you, as they run to you, May they experience the joy and the peace and the hope that you promise. And I pray against all the enemy's plans to take away from today 
now in Jesus' name. And I pray for all those husbands who have an alarm clock waiting for their wife at home. In Christ's name we pray.